All right, if you have your Bibles, uh, let's go ahead, open them up. First John chapter 5. First uh, John chapter 5. We actually, uh, only just to give you an update, we only have about two more sessions uh, through our journey through the letter of First John. And we're having so much fun, we're going to go ahead and tackle Second and Third John so that we can have uh, the complete set resting on our mantle at home. And so, uh, John, John has been drawing our attention to our relationship with God the Father through the lens of the Son. And what he does, and he really does this in anything that he writes, uh, he consistently says, take your eyes off of yourself, take your eyes off of your circumstances, off of your expectations, and put your eyes onto Christ. Uh, that you would look to Him as your, your advocate, you would look to Him as the substitution for your sins or the propitiation uh, of your sins. And, and he, he will never at any moment say, hey, take your eyes off of Him and look to yourself. He, just, he won't do it. Uh, because He understands that where our eyes are at matters a great deal. And, and so, so after, after all, John teaches that, that our view of Jesus will shape our understanding uh, of the heart of God the Father. And, and so when we see the love of God has, that He's displayed over us by sending Jesus to rescue us from both sin and death, he, he, John says, your motivation for obedience changes. Uh, that, that since the Gospel makes us children of God, we're able to see God truly for who He is. Because uh, we, we talked about this last couple of weeks, that when it comes to obedience, uh, we almost have an allergic reaction to it uh, because we think of obedience as the removal of freedom uh, when honestly what's at play here uh, is, is we, because of what God has done for us in Jesus and He is motivated by His love for us and His love for His glory, we don't have to look at Him as a taskmaster uh, and we don't have to think of ourselves as slaves because, uh, because any time you do that, your obedience really comes from a sense of trying to avoid punishment. Uh, I don't want to upset God, so I better do what He's told me to do, or I'm going to get punished for it. And, and when we read the Bible, we, we find that, that that's not the motivation of God's heart. Instead, there's a better word picture. Rather than being slaves, we are children. And when we are motivated, and when we see that God loves us as a caring Father, and we consider, even in part, the our, our very imperfect abilities to raise our own kids, we know that at the foundation of that is a love. And so when we start thinking that, that God loves us as a perfect Heavenly Father, our motivation for bringing a smile to His face changes. We do it because it's a privilege to be adopted by Him. We do it because He cares for us so very deeply and, and so the way we've been exploring this is that as we know Jesus, we're properly motivated to obey God and a major indicator of our obedience ends up being the love that we have uh, for other people, both inside and outside the biblical community. Uh, and so, so the way the, the letter is structured is, is really through two word pictures, right? I'm sure if you've been here uh, for the last ten lessons, you're like, I get this, man. You keep saying it. But I'm bringing everybody up else, uh, to... Uh, what? What just happened? Words are hard sometimes, Jessica. All right, so he gives us two word pictures. 
And the first one is, in the very first part of the letter, he says, God is light. And he says, in him there is no darkness. And so God's light uh, exposes what's lurking in the darkness, what's dangerous in the darkness. And when God says, hey, you don't want to walk into the darkness, he's not doing it to remove freedom. Again, he's doing it to keep you from drinking bleach because bleach will kill you. Uh, and so, and then the second word picture he comes in, and this is about the beginning of chapter 3, he says God is love. That he is not only the one who sets the tone for what love is, he's the embodiment of it, he models it, he displays it specifically through Jesus, and then he comes in and, and John says, hey, we love because he first loved us. That God is not beholden to us to cut us some slack, that, that everything he does is out of this motivation to, to care for us and says that this is love, not that we love God, but that he loves us. And, and then last week we saw these six birthmarks of a person who is found in Jesus. It's, it's these beliefs and these actions that indicate whether we're walking in the gospel or we're walking in an empty religion or we're walking in deception. And, and today what we're going to do is we're going to tackle seven verses. And what, what we're going to be forced to do is spend time roughly in one vital area of our lives. Uh, we're, we're going to talk about uh, eternal life, but not, not will there be golden girls in heaven or will you be able to get a good golf time. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, rather how we can walk in confidence that there is a day that awaits us after we die where we get to stand in the presence of King Jesus. Uh, we get to kneel before Him. We get to lift our voices uh, in perfect surrender, in perfect harmony uh, among all the other believers. And so that we can walk today in the confidence of, of eternal life. And so let's, let's do that. Let's pray. Father, we come to You and we are, we are very thankful today that You love us. And we are very mindful of Your care for us in Jesus. And we pray that we would be able to see Him more clearly today. And that through the power of Your Holy Spirit, we would be able to listen to You give testimony. To You call us out from the darkness into Your light. We love You and we thank You. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, Alright, my, my prayer this morning is that God helps us feel the important realization that nothing is more important than knowing God and having eternal life. There, there is nothing more important than that. And I think uh, this time of year that we find ourselves is, uh, carries with it some subtle deceptions because when it, when it comes to the summertime, we begin to think about things in different ways. Perhaps you've, you've thought more about your body than you have any other point of the year. Right? Uh, mainly because we show more of our body during this time. Uh, so you walk past a mirror and you say, does the rest of the world see me as pasty as I am? Right? Uh, does the rest of the world see me as pudgy as I appear? Right? Do they always see that angle of me? No? Just me? Alright. And, and so, so we, we can actually, in this season, begin to think things matter more than other areas of our lives. And we can give them more attention and we can make them 
more of a priority. And, and when you look in the mirror today to see how your tan's going or how your skin is stretching or sagging, you know, uh, what I want you to do, I want you to go to a specific place in your mind. And maybe, maybe you've seen this place before. Uh, maybe, maybe you've sat alongside a person who was elderly and passing away. And you realize that I've never once heard a person on their deathbed say, you know, I wish I was more tan right now. I wish I'd have done more abs. I wish I'd have lifted a little bit more. I wish I'd have, wish I'd have put more lotion on my dry skin. But that's never the question that's being asked at the end of a full life. Never. But what always does rest is, what's next? What's next? And now, now answering that question is of the utmost importance. In fact, understanding that question today makes a great difference in how you live the rest of, of your life. And, and so the text this morning, it's got, it has a, a lot of puzzling things in it. And John is, is in almost like a courtroom setting. He's going to call some witnesses to the stand. And he's going to ask them to give testimony about what Jesus has done. What ultimately he will do for us. And, uh, and really, he's going to help us try to answer this question, how can I have confidence in eternal life? Because according to John, God himself is going to take this stand and he's going to testify in an answer to this question. And like we said last week, any assurances that we have in our life with God begins and ends with the work of Jesus. Always. And so there will never be a moment where you say, hey God, check out how awesome I am. And he says, you're right, let's come on. Never. It will always begin and end with Jesus. And so what we're going to do, we're gonna, it's going to appear that we're just kind of reading right over uh, the first few verses. But really what it's doing is it's leading us up to verse 11. So, so let's start in verse 6 because we ended in verse 5 last week. All right? And this is what we say. This is key who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And, and the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. Verse 9, If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that He has borne concerning His Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in Himself. Whoever does not believe God has made Him a liar because He has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning His Son. And so, so in short, here's what's happening. The first witnesses that John calls to the stand to testify about who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, are, are Jesus' baptism... Jesus' crucifixion, uh, uh, and then the Holy Spirit, then He will say our testimony. And then in, beginning in verse 9, God, God begins to give testimony concerning His Son. And this leads us to the beauty of this promise of eternal life uh, with Him. And so, so verses 11 and 12 are important to us this morning. Uh, because uh, they bring us the content of what God says. So, so we don't often... Think of God witnessing to us, right? Uh, we, in fact, when we use that word, we think that we're witnessing for God. We think of ourselves as witnessing uh, for His glory. And if there was ever a testimony in the courtroom worth listening to, it would be this one. And so he says this in verse 11. 
And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. So whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Okay, so, so here's what we need to understand. We didn't create that. We didn't come up with that testimony. We didn't come up with that doctrine or that theology. God has established that. God has declared that. This is the way toward eternal life. And so, so just so that we're clear, let's fill in a blank. We only got two blanks today, right? So you can all start your grocery list a little earlier than normal. All right? So the question we're going to ask is, what is God's testimony about eternal life? What is it? And so it's simply this, that God gave us eternal life and this life is in His Son. God gave us eternal life. He gives us eternal life. And this life is found in His Son. So whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. So according to God's testimony, the way to have life is through who? The Son. Good. You're like, Son? So, so this brings up a crucial question. What does it mean to have the Son of God? Right? This is what John has said. Whoever has the Son has life. So, so what does it mean to have the Son of God? Because that word have can communicate a lot of different aspects. For example, there, uh, it, it doesn't necessarily say quite the same thing each time you say, I, I have a dollar, or I have a cold, or I have a lawyer, right? Uh, those, those can mean different things, but then at the same time, there's some, some commonalities to those meanings when you have something. Because when you have something, it does its thing for you. It does it for you. If, if you have a dollar, it buys you a dollar's worth of stuff. If you have a cold, it, it causes you to have, uh, makes your nose run, uh, to consider a do not resuscitate uh, note, right? That's the way it works in my house. If, if you have a lawyer, they do their thing by standing in the gap for you and representing you before a judge. So when you have those things, having something means it does its thing for you. And now this is the testimony of God in verse 12 that he who has the Son has life. And now we can say that, that having the Son, uh, what it means, that, that if you have the Son, then the Son does His thing for you. He does His thing for you. And John has told us some of the most important things that Jesus does for us. That He stands before a holy God and He says, I've taken, their, I've taken the payment of their sin and death. I've done it. He's our mediator. We said last week, he fulfills three very important offices. He fulfills the office of the prophet, so he speaks the truth of God to us. He fulfills the office of priest. He offers a sacrifice on our behalf. And then he, offer, he fulfills the office of king. And he reigns in perfect governance over us. He leads us and he cares for us in ways that are unimaginable. And so, so, so if, we, if we have the Son, then the Son does His thing for us. And if, if you want to spend one of the most encouraging hours of, that you can have this entire week 
take out a piece of paper, open up your Bible, and just on the top right, what are the things that Jesus does for me? And then just start listing them as you read the Word. And then as you list it on the side, in quotation marks, it says, He does this for me. He does this for me. He fulfills this for me. He cares for me in this way. He promises to do this, and He will do this for me. So let's fill out our second blank. What does it mean to have the Son of God? And so, so the answer is simply this. Having all that Jesus came to do and came to be can be summed up in one word, life. Life. That, that He who has the Son has life. Eternal life is not just this uh, extension of all the frustrations and the half-joys that we experience in this life. Okay? That's not, that's not what, what happens after we die if we are found in Christ. We don't just move along to a new neighborhood and say, well, I guess I live here now. You don't carry those same frustrations or those, those half-felt, like I said, joys. In fact, when Jesus is finished doing His thing, uh, every frustration will be gone and every half-joy will be fulfilled. In fact, John tells us this, or Jesus tells us this in John uh, chapter 10, the Gospel of John, not 1 John, uh, chapter 10, where He comes in and He's explaining what He's bringing to the table as opposed to what the enemy is doing. He says, I've come that you may have life and have it abundantly. Abundantly. Full. Life to the max. And he says, but the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I've come that you may have life and have it to the fullest. John, John Piper says this way, if you have the Son, it means that anything that infinite love, infinite power, infinite wisdom can do for your good will in fact be done for you. He says, who is to condemn? It's Jesus Christ who dies. Yes, who is at the right hand of God who indeed intercedes for us? Who shall separate us from the love of God? Who shall separate us specifically from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword says no. In fact, Paul brings this out in Romans 8 in one of the greatest moments of, of celebration we find in all of the Word. He starts to wonder what can separate us from the love of Christ. And he says, can any of these things separate us? And he says, no. Because in these things we are more than conquerors. That, that when Jesus does His thing, and that makes it sound so small, right? Okay, guys, I do it reminds me of like these moments when I thought I was much better at sport than I was in high school. So, yeah, guys, I'll do my thing. But when Jesus does His thing, something powerful happens. Something incredibly powerful because we go from nothing to something. We go from incapable to capable. We go from powerless to powerful. We go from the servants to the conquerors. We are more than conquerors. And that means that when the Son of God takes the tribulations of your life, He will actually he turns them for your good. You don't just escape from your enemy. He is powerless against you. And so, so if you want to be more than a survivor, and you want to be more than a conqueror in the battles of life, 
then what John tells us is you have to have the Son. You can't do it apart from Him. And so, but we still haven't answered the, the important question, right? Like, how do we come to have the Son? And I think this is, this is very important because the last part of verse 12 says it. It says that whoever does not have the Son does not have life. So that's, that's a stark and a grave warning to us. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. In other words, not everyone has the Son, and so not everyone has eternal life. And as the believer, okay? You hear me? Hear me when I say this. As the believer, this is what should keep us up at night. That there are people that you love deeply that don't know Christ. And because they don't know Christ, they don't have life. That when they die, it ends up in a completely separate place for them. So just, just hypothetically, you know, just think, think to yourself here, rhetorically. When you lay your head down at night, does your heart break for those people? Are they in the conversation that you're having? That God help me proclaim your goodness to them. God, help me, help me teach to them their need for life. Help me show them what it looks like to be Jesus. And so it says, this is important because there are those who don't. And so the answer is not complicated. And it's really not hard to find. In fact, we find it in verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. That's what he tells us. I write these things to you. John's saying, hey, he's told us all along, right? Little children, beloved, says, I'm, I'm letting you know this. I'm telling you that, that you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you will know that you have eternal life. Notice verse 13 that says that those who believe in the name of the Son of God have eternal life. And, and that verse 12 says, whoever has the Son has life. And so the implication is simply this, that, that, that the way to have the Son is to believe in the Son. The way to have the Son is to believe the Son. All that Jesus has done, all that He continues to do, all that He will forever do, tends to have two goals in mind. That, that one of them, and this isn't as a matter of importance, that one of them is the liberation of His people from sin and death. And then the other one is the glorification of His infinite worth. It's what He does. That's, that's the origin of our salvation. Because of who Jesus is, we can be who He's called us to be. And so, so that's the source of eternal life. And to show what, what He loves is the liberation of His people and the magnification of His power, that His services aren't for sale, by the way, that, that He will not be paid. And so, so the question, how do you come to have the Son of God, that He makes you a free offer and you accept His offer, and then you trust Him. And that's the hard part. Right? Because we, we're fine with the understanding of I need a Savior, right? We're fine at times. Now, we might be pretty full of ourselves some of the times, but there's these few moments where we realize, well, I really am not capable of doing all things perfectly. 
And so we hear of this offer to be both Lord and Savior, and we say, I need a Savior. And then we struggle when it comes to the Lord part because that's when the trust gets thrown into the mix. And we say prayers like, I want to want to trust Him. And we pray for for greater faith, and we pray for for Him to move more mightily so that we can trust Him even more. And and this is the offer, that, that He gives you a free offer of Himself, you accept His offer, and you trust Him, and He does His thing for those who trust in Him. That He who has the Son has life. So we can start wrapping this up. Now, okay, so as I say that, it is entirely possible to reject Him. It is. Um, that, that you can say, you know, I, I can handle this by myself, or you can say, there's, you know, there's really no point in putting my trust in someone I, I don't believe will really come through when life gets hard, uh, because cause he's, he's too important to be concerned with someone as small as me. Or you can say, sure, tell Jesus to come and save me, but, but he better not tell me to do anything I don't want to do. And that's, that's the offer a lot of us have tried to make with Jesus. I want you to be Lord of my life as long as you don't tell me to do anything I don't want to do. Or anything that I think will make me look foolish in the world's eyes. And so, some, some of you this morning need to have the Son of God. You do. And, and we shouldn't reject His offer of life by any of these responses that, that none of us can handle our case by ourselves. We, we, we can't claim innocence because we aren't innocent. And we're in the courtroom and we stand before a perfect judge who sees the heart of man and still shows mercy to us. He still sends His Son to take our place. We can't, we can't say that the Son of God won't come to the work for a nobody like us because that's the only kind of people He came to work for. There's this beautiful moment in the Gospels when any time Jesus is spending time with, with sinners and tax collectors and people who weren't churchy people, it, it doesn't take long before you start hearing the, the rumblings of church people. And they was like, what, what, are they, what is he doing hanging out with them? And there's this beautiful moment in, in Luke and, and specifically in Matthew where Jesus hears the rumblings and he's like, these are the people I came to save. I came to rescue them. The, the healthy, they don't need the doctor. It's the sick who do. And I can imagine someone who was sick sitting in the room saying, no, wait a minute. And then Jesus looks at him and is like, are you? He's like, yeah, I am. And so understand this, that, that if you say that, that there's no way that Jesus would come to save someone like you, you're wrong. Because it's specifically you He comes for. Specifically you. And maybe you say, you know, I'm coming... Say, yeah, I'll, I'll accept his offer to be my lawyer, but you better not tell me to do anything foolish. That's, that's not trust. You can't, you can't keep a lawyer that way. He'll do his thing for you as you trust him to do his thing. 
And I think, I think the danger in, in talking about Jesus and the danger of talking about eternal life is it's subtle because our, our motivation needs to be clearly understood. Uh, and, and what I'm teaching about here is important to hear. I'm not saying that you need to know Jesus so that you can have eternal life. I'm saying that the aim of eternal life is the privilege of knowing Jesus forever. Forever. I've sat in a ton of funeral services in my day. And I always have this irritation or or a frustration when I hear pastors like myself, very well-intentioned, um, encourage people to believe the gospel and to give Jesus their lives. And that's not what irritates me. What irritates me is typically the next line that they will say. That they will they'll say, if you ever want to see grandma, aunt, friend, if you ever want to see them again, then you need to put your trust in Jesus. And what happens is, a, again, very well-intentioned. It doesn't look bad at all, right? Because you're like, yeah, I want to see them again. But if that's your motivation for, for going to heaven, it's to see them, then you have no idea about what Christ has done for you. You have no understanding of the weight of your sin. You have no understanding of the price that was paid to rescue you. In fact, I don't want to sound inconsiderate, and I don't want to demean... Uh, your sorrow or your grandma or your aunt or your friend, but, but they don't and they cannot compare to Jesus. And to use Christ as a means to seeing them again is a gross, and a, lack, a, a, a gross lack of understanding of what Jesus has come to do for you and me. They may have been great. They may have been special. But they were never capable of rescuing you from the bondage of sin and the penalty of death. That, that, that what you get in the reward of eternal life is Jesus. And I assure you, He is much greater than anyone you believe will be waiting for you at the pearly gates. Which, which is, I'm already on a soapbox, I might as well stay on it, right? Okay? I'm just, just be honest with you. I don't think that at any point when you pass away, someone's going to be in the throne room of God Almighty, worshiping Him with the angels. I doubt they're going to say, Oh, Mark's here. All right, be right back. Not one moment. And I love Mark. I do. Love Mark for a long part of my life. But to think that any of us compares to the majesty of God is idolatry. Honestly, it is. There's a question that I've heard through a lot of people now. I think, I think it's C.S. Lewis once posed it, originally posted it. Um, and it was, if, if you were able to go to heaven and you only had Jesus and nothing else, would you go? And we sit here today and we're like, oh, yeah. That's, clearly we know the answer because we've walked through First John together. But he brings up this question of if you didn't have 
any of the trappings of this life, if you didn't have any of the things that we think are ultimate, if you didn't have uh, that, that moment where it sounds very romantic that, you know, when your spouse arrives, you'll be sitting on that bench just waiting for them. If you didn't have any of that and you had Christ, would, you, would that be enough? And the only way we understand what Jesus has done is when we look back and we say, not only is that enough, it's more than enough. That what you have in the promise of eternal life is Jesus. And it's more than enough. It is. I'm ashamed of how often I've thought about heaven, especially when I was younger, thinking, oh, is it going to be like a church service all the time? Then I started creating, like, no, God is very creative, so surely we'll be playing basketball all the time. And there's going to be a baseball field, and there's going to be, as I've gotten older, I'm like, there's going to be some Netflix. And <laughs> but you get him. You get him. We can't grow maturely if we consistently think of what is to come as anything but Jesus. So that's why, that's why that becomes the motivation of our lives. That's why obedience comes easier, more joyfully. Because our motivation is to make much of Him because He has done so much for us. Our desire this week is to love God. Bye. Please stand with me. As we wrap up, let me make a couple things available. If you need prayer this morning, we want to pray with you. If you've never asked Jesus into your heart, we plead with you, we plead with you to make this day the day you come back to life. You have found yourself in a room full of misfits, full of people who are sinners, um, but not all sinners anymore because we have been changed by the love of God. And our prayer and our plead with you that you would understand that life doesn't make sense apart from Christ. It doesn't. I love you guys. Let's, let us pray. Father, we come to you and we thank you and we love you. We thank you that we can talk about life with you. That we can walk in confidence today that, that even, even the moments that we have that are as good as they get on this side of eternity, that that it pales in comparison to what awaits us. We thank You that that even these moments that we believe will end us, that they won't end us because of what awaits us. And we thank You that we are secured in Your Son. Help us honor Him this week in how we live. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.